0: If you would, um, I know it's been a lot of up-down. If you would, stand for the reading of God's Word now with me. Psalm 140 is our main passage. I'm going to just clip the end of 139 as well, but we'll read that when we get there to that point. So we're just going to read... Psalm, I'll just read Psalm 140 uh, in its entirety. entirety. It says this, Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. That is the title of this. It is a Psalm of David. Verse 1, Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's and under their lips is the venom of asps. Selah. Selah. "'Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. "'Preserve me from violent men "'who have planned to trip up my feet. "'The arrogant have hidden a trap for me, "'and with cords they have spread a net. "'Beside the way they have set snares for me. "'I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. "'Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. "'O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation. "'You have covered my head in the day of battle. "'Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked.' Do not further their evil plot, or they will be exalted. As for the head of those who surround me, let let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name, the upright shall dwell in your presence. May God add the blessing, his blessing, and the anointing of his spirit to the reading of his word, and may we be made more righteous because of its hearing. Amen. You may be seated. There was a reporter interviewing an old man on his 100th birthday. And he asked him this question. He said, "How what? Excuse me, what are you most proud of?" he asked. And the man sat back and thought and he said, "Well, you know what? I don't have an enemy in all the world." And the reporter, the young reporter said, How, "What a what a blessed and beautiful thought. How inspirational," said the reporter. "Yep." Added the old-timer grinning, the last one died about three years ago, I outlived them all. (laughs) The question we're going to ask today, a couple questions, is it appropriate for Christians to have enemies? And then centrally, does God have enemies? Does God have enemies? And that may seem like a rather elementary question, but I think it's necessary to ask, especially since we're expositing Psalm 140 this morning. I think we have to answer that question succinctly. So if somebody asked me, does God have enemies, I would say two things, yes and no. Yes and no. No, if what we mean by an enemy is someone or something that presents a real challenge to God's sovereignty. No one can stand against the Lord, not even that ancient foe that is spoken of in scripture as Martin Luther in the hymn famously put it the ancient foe that doth seek to work us woe satan satan doesn't even present any sort of legitimate challenge to the plan of god so if you're asking me when it comes to opposing god is there any legitimate claim anybody can make when they're to be an actual opposition to the lord the answer to that question is most resoundedly no but yes as well yes if what we mean is someone living in such a way or acting in such a way or speaking in such a way that rebels against the legitimate kingship of God, one who seeks to oppose the unopposable, so to speak. So yes, the answer to that question, does God have enemies? Yes. So if He has enemies, necessarily we do, we are His people, and so therefore necessarily we have enemies as well. How do we deal with that? How does King David deal with that, being a man after God's own heart, being one who has enemies? And I think there's four things I'm going to bring out of this text for you today. And the first one is sort of a theology of enemies, right? We're going to, be, we're going to examine the Scriptures. This is not, um, I'm not under any illusion that this is, um, oh, Christianity 101. This is heavy stuff. We're going to dive pretty deep and understand enemies from a scriptural perspective today, and so I may say something that catches you a little off guard. Examine it. I'm not saying I'm completely right. I'm on my way when it comes to this. I'm still developing my own theology of enemies and exactly how that plays itself out every day in my life and how then I shall live, right? But I think it's important because the Bible speaks of God having enemies and God's people having enemies that we have a robust and and extensive understanding of and have a theology of enemies, what it means. So that's the first point is of King David, how he deals with it. The first thing he does is he calls an enemy an enemy. He doesn't light foot around it. He calls an enemy of God an enemy. And then the next three points I'm going to bring out are more practical. We're going to see how David deals with that from Psalm 140. So, David has a theology of enemies. That's the first one. He calls an enemy an enemy. Number two, he prays for help. He prays for help. Second thing he does practically, it's our third point, he prays for his enemies. And then the fourth thing he does, facing his enemies and the persecution that they bring to him, he thinks about the whole situation in light of eternity. So, he calls an enemy an enemy, he prays for help, he prays for his enemies, and he thinks of the whole situation in light of eternity. So, number one, King David calls an enemy an enemy. Remember, and you, you saw it reflected in the Psalms that were just read uh, earlier by Jonas and Danny you've got this constant theme, especially in Psalm 106 is what Jonas read. You've got this constant theme that runs all the way throughout the Psalms, and it's this. There are two types of people, the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked. This is the language of the Old Testament of the Psalms and also bridging over into the New Testament as well. The righteous being he that seeks after the Lord, who accepts the Lord's kingship and obeys his law. The wicked being the one who holds The Lord, in derision, rebels against his rule and disregards his law. Oftentimes, he takes out his rebellion against God against the righteous man that is spoken about in the rest of the Psalms. This person is God's enemy. Okay, The wicked man is God's enemy. And that's what you've got going on in Psalm 140 and really the end of Psalm 139 as well. So, and it's really, I preached Psalm 139, at least the first 17 verses, 18 verses, a couple weeks ago, and we talked about God's knowledge of you. Well, the second part of that psalm is getting at something. I actually think in working through some of the commentaries and men much smarter than myself who have examined the scriptures and are, are psalms scholars, that 139 and 140 may have been one psalm. Okay, at, at some point in time in history, but when we added verses and breaks and so on and so forth in there, they got divided into two. And if you read them in their entirety, read Psalm 139 on your own time and 140 back to back, and you can kind of see how that might be a plausible theory, right? Because you've got this whole. This, I, I actually think this is a psalm that was written. These psalms are written later in David's life, so he's got a little bit of wisdom that he's accumulated, a little bit more understanding about. Because he's, he's screwed up um, dealing with his enemies. If you know anything about King David, he's not definitely not perfect. He, he enacts vengeance, vengeance when he should be merciful, and he's merciful when he should enact vengeance, and so on and so forth. So he doesn't get it right. And I think later on in his life, he's, he's learning that before he, before he labels someone an enemy, the thing he needs to do thoroughly is have some serious self-examination about why he's feeling the way he's feeling about said enemy, okay? And so Psalm 139, search me, God, know me, help me to understand myself intimately the way that you understand me intimately. And then if you look at the bottom of Psalm 139, it says this. He gets really imprecatory, all right? And that's the word, you'll hear that word said a lot today. "'Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God.'" So he, all that stuff about knitting together in my mother's womb and all that, this is the same song. "'Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. "'O men of blood, depart from me. "'They speak against you with malicious intent. "'Your enemies take your name in vain. "'Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord?' And do I not loathe those who rise up against you I hate them with complete hatred I count them my what enemies And then he comes back to the refrain here search me O God and know my heart try me and know my thoughts see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting David doesn't trust his own instincts about how he feels about people, and rightfully so, Uriah the Hittite, right, Absalom, he got Doag the Edomite right, right, he's one for three in that case. We are all still wrong a lot. A lot. If someone is opposing you because you're sinning or acting foolishly, it's not because they are your enemy. It's because they are your friend. So disclaimer: It's important before we continue any any farther forward in this. An enemy of God is one who stands opposed to God and His law. Your enemy also is one who stands opposed to God and his law. So, important disclaimer, that not all who oppose you prove themselves to be enemies of God. Okay? If they oppose God, then yes, they oppose you. But just because they oppose you does not mean they're opposing God. Because we're all still wrong a lot. People who listen when they are corrected, will live. But those who will not admit that they are wrong are in danger. That comes from Proverbs chapter 10. If your boss isn't a Christian and he corrects you because you're doing something wrong at work, that's not evidently persecution. That's an opportunity for you to become a better employee. But over time, you may discern that he picks on you because you're a Christian. He makes jokes about your faith or actively works against you for no other reason than that he hates your God. He then could prove himself to be in that position that we're talking about as an enemy of God. And so David, as he's understanding he's trying to get a, a more solid he's he's learned his instincts aren't always correct. He's hesitant a little bit as he's going through here. He's examining himself. He's asking God to give him wisdom when it comes to these wicked men. But he's making sure that those wicked men aren't just opposing him. They're opposing God because King David is clearly trying to carry out what God has asked of him. So he's praised and he says things like for the sake of your name, act with vengeance upon them. Also understand this about King David. He was a civil magistrate. He was a king. God appointed him to wield the sword, physical force to restrain evil and to support good. This was his ordained role. And I think we can go off a couple different in a couple different ditches when interpreting imprecatory scripture that's the name for anytime you anytime you come to a passage especially in the psalms where it's talking about slaying the wicked and breaking their teeth and all those things that you kind of look at and you're like, "Ew, that seems harsh, right?" Anytime you come to those passages of scripture, there's a couple ditches you can go off on in interpreting it. The first ditch is to think that God is calling all of us to go out and break some teeth. God has given the sword to restrain evil to civil magistrates such as King David, and it is a very, very heavy burden to bear, okay? So, before you run for office, and we have a couple people that have ran and won office in our, in our congregation, that's a heavy burden to bear, Because God has ordained their role to be that of the ones who have the authority to wield the sword to restrain evil and promote good. And that, like King David here, has to be done with much trepidation, much fear, much reliance upon God. I think that's why David rightfully is having the instinct in Psalm 140, Psalm 139, to depend upon God. And the other ditch we can go off of is the complete other side of the coin which was well that was just uncivilized Old Testament culture and then we just should just ignore those weird sections of scripture of God's word because we don't really understand it or we allegorize it to say it's all just speaking of only spiritual warfare that's not evidently true It's important that we have scripturally informed categories for having enemies as much as one may want to try to sanitize Christianity to be all about good vibes and positive encouraging thoughts, the Bible has clear language about ongoing warfare and struggle between God's people and God's enemies. Actual physical warfare in the Old Testament and spiritual warfare, warfare coupled with persecution in the New Testament. There are clear sides and there is serious aggression. The Lord Jesus himself warns us to expect opposition and slander. The Lord Jesus himself was not only crucified for our sins, but he was lied about. He was maligned. He was hated for the sake of truth for nearly all of his ministry. See, the cross was only a day. The persecution, the malignment went on for three solid years. Anytime Jesus spoke truth, darkness was present, they opposed him. They called him all sorts of things. Said he had a demon, right? Ridiculous. As John 15 verse 20 says, No servant is greater than his master if they persecuted me, Jesus, Will they not also persecute you? And in this new covenant era of Ephesians chapter 6, tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. The kingdom of God will not be realized through armies and politics and warfare. And the battleground is not over physical territories and boundaries. That sort of stuff, really, the conflicts we see in the world the conflicts that Pontius Pilate would have been accustomed to when Jesus told him, my kingdom is not of this world, he was telling him, you're thinking too small. You're thinking too small about the kingdom, about my kingdom, about what's coming. You see, conflicts with politics and warfare and physical territories and boundaries are much like prisoners of war fighting over scraps after they've gotten their... Tales handed to them in the battle. When Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world, lest my servants would be fighting, in John 18, this was not a pacifist call to just be quiet and sing about the sweet by and by all the days of our life. He was saying, My kingdom is not like an earthly kingdom. We fight differently. We fight enemies, but we fight differently differently. His army is the church, and our weapon is the word of God. Our helper is the Holy Spirit. The battleground is each human heart, and our enemy is any remaining resistance to the rightful rule of King Jesus and the lies they use to support that resistance. You see, Jesus already dealt the decisive blow at Calvary. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given unto him. Let me say that again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto him. Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, not just as king of heaven, but also already king of earth. It's his. Do you see why I said any squabbling that now goes on politically speaking over boundaries and territories and natural resources and so on and so forth is just POWs fighting over scraps because the battle's already over. It's done. It has been decided. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, and we as his army are now merely on mop-up duty. It's our job to go into all the world and make sure that everyone gets the memo that death and sin no longer hold any sway over us and that Christ is firmly seated as Lord over the entire universe, present company included. But this falling world loves darkness and lies. So when an agent of the light, when a a soldier in the army of God When the church comes with light and truth appearing, proclaiming Christ as king, persecution and mistreatment will ensue at the hand of those who resist his rule. I heard it said, I went to the fair this week a couple times, Posey County Fair, love it, right? It's good stuff. I heard it said, don't be surprised when you walk around the backside of the booth at the fair and stick your head through the hole in the canvas when people start throwing wet sponges at it. When you, as a representative of light, of truth, speak truth and refuse to consent to lies, you will have wet sponges thrown at you you will be persecuted you are no greater than your master who was persecuted for three solid years during his truth speaking persecution and mistreatment will ensue at the hand of those who resist his rule his enemies your enemies now to be very very clear there is one criteria for an enemy of god and that criteria is this, those who resist the rule of Jesus. It is not a personality conflict. It's not a sin that someone committed against you a long time ago. Just to be clear, it is sinful for you to pray imprecatory prayers against someone who just gets on your nerves. All right? That doesn't make someone an enemy of God. An enemy of God resists his rightful rule. So when we are sure that someone is an enemy of the Lord and they oppose you because they oppose him, what's next? And that's our three next points. We're going to find those things from Psalm 140. What does King David do? He's had all this self-examination through Psalm 139. He's thought, he he's getting a little bit of age to him, and so he's got some he's got clarity. He says that he's searching his own heart and he rightfully determines that there are definitely wicked men out there that are opposing God. And so then what does David do? First thing he does, the first thing he does is he asks for help from the only one who can actually help. He acknowledges his need for the Lord. He says, Lord, I need you. I need you for deliverance and preservation, preservation and protection from these men. Look at verse 1. 140 verse 1. First two words, deliver me. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men. We're talking about a dude with Armies. Big, mean armies. And his first instinct is what? Deliver me, O Lord. Then look at verse 4 Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked, preserve me from violent men. So David acknowledges his need. He goes to the Lord with a plea, with a petition. He acknowledges his circumstances and then comes back to the Lord with this petition of deliver me, preserve me, protect me. In other words, he acknowledges the necessity of going to God to resolve this situation. He can't fix it on his own and nobody else can fix it either. Only God can answer this situation. Only God can fulfill this need. David pleads to the Lord. Because he's the only one that can answer. And let me be the first one to volunteer that this is definitely not my first instinct when I'm opposed. Anybody join me in that? Can I get a witness? I got Posey County dirt in my veins. When I feel opposed, vengeance and pride fill my chest. And there's just one problem with that. Vengeance is not mine Every time I feel opposed Doesn't mean that God is being opposed We are much too selfish and sinful To establish ourselves As vigilante, judge, jury, and executioner Of God's enemies It's like handing a toddler The keys to a Corvette We can't handle that kind of vengeance. David says, man, I hate him with complete hatred, God. Like, it really gets under my skin. It really eats at me when I see people opposing the Lord. Oh, yeah, you think it it gets on your nerves? You think it gets under your skin? Try being the king of all the universe and having these little feeble creatures that you created out of dust. Wallow in their pride. You think you're mad? You have no idea. You think your vengeance is hot? You have no clue. So sit down and be quiet. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Vengeance is mine. We can't even rightfully discern when a person is actually an enemy of God. Put away your sword, Peter. Right? Wrong weapon. Right moment, wrong weapon, Peter. And then later, Peter has the opportunity to to give the kind of opposition necessary to actually see the thing be progressed, see the kingdom of God progress, and what's he do? Cowers away. Wrong weapon, right moment, again, right? You are my God. You are my strength. You have delivered me in the past. Look at what he does, especially in verses 6 and 7. He says, "'I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. "'Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord,' Now you can immediately see what he is doing. He's making a confession of faith about God in order to kind of embolden his confidence to pray the things he's about to pray with God. He says, Lord, you're my Lord, you're my God, hear what I pray. He confesses something about God which emboldens him to pray and to believe that God will actually answer his prayer. You are my God. Now, have you ever thought about When we, because usually week by week, there's the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, and then the one we spoke today. When you stand up and recite the Apostles' Creed, or you stand up and recite the Nicene Creed, or you stand up and we recite the 23rd Psalm together, or you stand up and recite a biblical confession of faith, have you ever thought that what you're actually emboldening yourself to do is to pray to God and to trust that He will actually answer your prayers? We, I'm a forgetful man when it comes to the gospel. I'm a forgetful man when it comes to the power of God and who's in control of this thing. I need to come with God's people and confess over and over and over again the power of God. Who he is, what he has done, what he is doing. And that helps embolden my prayers. That's how confession works. It instills and increases our confidence in God. And that's what David is doing when he says, Oh Lord, you are my God. He forgives us when we ask forgiveness, He entrusts us and intends good for us when we're in tight spots. Verse 7, O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. You have covered my head, past tense, in the day of battle. So David's He's confessing that the Lord is his Lord. He's remembering now. Remember how important remembering the works of God is in one's prayer life? He's saying, you've done this before. You've helped me before. I've been between a rock and a hard place before, and you've came to my aid. Now spare me against these evil men. We need to remember that when we're going to the Lord to ask Him for help in our present difficult situation, when we're being persecuted for our faith, when you get let go of from a job and you have to figure things out, because you wouldn't sign the statement. When you refuse to wear the rainbow shirt and march with your corporate parade, and so you're looked over for promotion or whatever, You, like David, can go and say, you've delivered me from all the things up until this point, Lord, and I know you will deliver me from this. Having great confidence in him. It's not the first time you'll go to him, and it's surely probably not the last time you'll go to him. But you remember how good he is. You remember that he's faithful. And so David The first thing he does is he goes to the Lord. He goes and knows where his help comes from. The second thing he does is he petitions the Lord for his enemies. He prays for his enemies. You see it in verse 9 9 to 11, but really it starts in verse 8. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked... Do not further their evil plot, or they will be exalted. As for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fire, fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. Let the not slanderer, excuse me, let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. Here, David is praying for his enemies to be thwarted that their schemes would rebound upon them, that they would recoil upon them, and that their wicked plans for him would end up bouncing back on them. For the glory of the Lord, for the sake of God's fame and God's glory, and the furthering of God's kingdom, may those who oppose it be removed out of the way. May the evil that they plan come back on them, is what he's saying. Notice the parallel language between verse 10 the coals falling on their head. Sound familiar? Where else do we see that? Anybody know? Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, 17 through 21. Notice the parallel language. Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what is honorable in the side of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Right? Don't go out seeking vengeance. When it comes to the enemies of God, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Your job, our job as the army of God, the church of God, is to expose their hatred for what it is through doing good and declaring truth. That's the right weapon for this moment. And so you do your part, and then in your prayer closet, you ask God to do his. I say this with as much pastoral love as I can. Don't pray for your rebellious family members to prosper. Pray that the Lord would break them, that in all their rebellion and scheming, he would turn it right back on their head, that Christ might appear to them and say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And that they might know eternal life. Because what good does it do a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What good does it do a man to gain the whole world and yet be labeled and still rightfully labeled an enemy of God? Don't pray for their prosperity. Pray like David prays. Pray like the Psalms pray. Get in your prayer, God, your prayer closet, and ask God to do his part. Pray as David did, that the Lord would turn their foolishness back on their heads, that their lying tongues would be exposed. Even if you do do find yourself in the seat of a civil magistrate, maybe, and we do have a couple, like I said, you bear the sword, but you never bear it for personal vengeance. That's what David did against Uriah the Hittite. And it was sinful. David asked for the Lord not only to not let his enemies succeed, but he says in verse 8, don't grant the desires of the wicked. Do not further their evil plot, or they will be exalted. He knows that the wicked are inherently prideful. Every sin is prideful, because you're doing what God has told you not to do. Therefore, you think you're smarter than God. And David is saying, don't reward them, They're already prideful. They'll be even more prideful if they're successful. So, Lord, thwart them so that they'll have to be humbled. Don't let them succeed, he prays in verse 9. And then finally... David keeps the whole scenario in light of eternity. The whole situation in light of eternity. In light of eternal realities, what he knows about God. So in verses 12 and 13, he sets a great hope before his eyes. He says he begins by saying, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Now how does he know this? He knows this because he's a king, and part of his job as a king excuse me, is to maintain the cause of the afflicted and to execute justice for the needy. That's part of his job. And David knows that when he does that as best he can do it, he's still a pale reflection of King Jesus. He's still not God. He knows that God is a better king. And so he knows that if it's his job to maintain the cause of the afflicted and to give justice to the needy, then God certainly will in his case and in the cause of those who trust him. But when he turns his eyes to the future, right, towards the bottom of the psalm, I love this part of the passage, surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. He expects to give thanks to God and the upright shall dwell in your presence, he says, You see that? The righteous shall give thanks to your name. They will. They shall give thanks to your name. And the upright shall dwell in your presence. That reminds me of um, the very bottom, verse 13b of the 23rd Psalm, right? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, or even the end of Revelation chapter 22. And the upright shall see his face. And this is the hope that he holds up before his own eyes, and this is the most powerful steering factor in how we are to deal with the enemies of God that slander us. We think, we act, we pray with the great hope of God's kingdom ever before our eyes. And lest you forget, O oh righteous one, lest you forget you were once an enemy of God, a lover of darkness breathing out threats against his people. He knew not what it was to rebel, and he took the consequences of your rebellion. He knew not what it was to be an enemy of God, yet he took the consequences of your opposition to God. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If the enemies of God stay enemies of God, they will pay with the full wrath of God's vengeance for eternity. But if the enemies of God, like you have come to know, brother or sister, if as an enemy of God you will repent, you will believe, you will follow after the lordship of Christ, then Christ has paid that penalty for you. Rebellion will be repaid. It will either be repaid in eternity or Christ paid for it on the cross. Your Savior not only died for you at the hands of wicked men, but your heavenly Father ordained that he would be slandered for you. He bore slander for you. They said outrageous things about our Lord of glory. They called him, they said, remember, they said, you, you must be one that have a you you cast out demons because you've got a demon, because you're you're of the prince of demons. And we're talking about the man, we're talking about the God who created the demons, cast them out when they rebelled against him, and then when they were standing and and, and inhabiting. the the person of people that had this affliction, they would stand as Jesus came up and they would say, these demons would cower in fear before the Lord Jesus Christ. And these people had the audacity to say that he had a demon. Lies, slander, malice. If you have been slandered, if you get slandered, it should be a comfort indeed that you have not been slandered like your Savior was slandered. And if you ever have ever slandered anyone else or wrongfully labeled someone an enemy, exacted your vengeance against them, then the fact that your Savior was slandered in your place should assume, assure you, that even sin, that sin, has been paid for. And then finally, 10,000 years from now, when you look back to the malice and slander that you might receive at the hands of the enemies of God, you will think to yourself, what light, Used the Apostle Paul's language, what light and momentary affliction, what light and momentary affliction I bore for the sake of his eternal kingdom come and his perfect will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, We need to be reminded day over day over day after day that we were once your enemies, yet you saved us. But that doesn't need to keep us from rightly seeing things the way they are. You are opposed, God. Sons of darkness, many of them still walk this world opposing you. And we, in our sin nature, still, still, Lord, those old ways come back up. Those old habits of darkness come back up. And we need to be reminded that's not us any longer. We're not enemies of God. We're sons of God. So help us to walk in that way, to be reminded in that way, as you use us to call Sons of darkness into to be sons of light. Lord, this is so tricky. Help us to know when to assert ourselves and when to be quiet. Help us to know when the right moment is to speak and what to say, what tone we should use, how we should approach these enemies. Always with truth, Always prayerfully, always with humility. But I'll pray it here because I've asked the people to pray it. Lord, crush your enemies before you. Crush them. Humble them. In the town of Mount Vernon, crush your enemies before you. Humble them that they would repent. And then help us to be your humble servants, ready to receive those new sons of light, teaching them to obey you further and further and further. Send your spirit to aid us in this task, Lord. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, it's been a pleasure to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. You may go in peace.